This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Did you realize that the basics of the concept cyber war go back to the beginnings of the Internet almost 50 years ago? And while, of course, we hear stories in the, in the media about all the cyber attacks coming from other countries like Russia and North Korea and China and, and, and others, the basics of these threats came actually from the United States. Journalist Fred Kaplan captures the history of this topic in his new book, Dark Territory, the Secret History of Cyber War, and Fred joins us on the show right now. Fred, welcome. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Uh, so ever since, really, we've had the concept of the Internet, the, the thought of cyber war has kind of been in play. Right. It goes back uh, in, in 1967, the ARPANET was about to roll out. The ARPANET was the precursor to the Internet. And, uh, you know, this was a great boon to scientific research. All the contractors of the Defense Department and labs and universities could communicate with each other on one network uh, instead of having to go through a zillion consoles. But there was a computer scientist named Willis Ware. He was, he'd been a computer pioneer. He was the head of the computer science department at the RAND Corporation, mm -hmm. Uh, a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the National Security Agency. And, and he wrote a paper. It was classified at the time. It's been declassified since. It's uh, fascinating to read. And basically he said, look, once you put information on a computer network, once you have online access from multiple unsecured locations, you are creating inherent vulnerabilities you're not going to be able to keep secrets anymore. And when I was doing the research for my book, I, I talked to the man who was in charge of the ARPA, in charge of ARPA. Mm -hmm. And I said, were you familiar with uh, Willis Ware's paper? And he goes, yeah, sure, I, I knew Willis. And I said, what did you think? And he said, well, I took it to the team working on the ARPANET, and they said, oh, look, don't, don't saddle us with a security requirement. Look how hard it is to do what we've done. It's like... It's like telling the Wright brothers that the first plane has to carry 20 passengers for 50 <laughs> miles. Let's do this one step at a time. And, and meanwhile, it's going to be decades before the Russians can do anything like this. And, well, yeah, it was decades. It was about two and a half or three decades. In the meantime, whole networks and systems had sprouted up with no provision for security whatsoever. And, and I, I look at this as sort of the the bitten apple in the digital garden of Eden. It was something that was foreseeable and, and by a small number of people actually foreseen from the beginning, something inherent in the technology. But I, I guess, though, for, for the majority of people out there, maybe they're not surprised that at such an early, early time in, in what we consider to be the Internet, probably a lot of people didn't think about security. But it's interesting, you start the book talking about this transitional moment in this whole process, and it involves President Reagan, and we, as we were talking about it, it, it involves the, an actual uh, Hollywood movie, yeah. War, war Games, yeah, Matthew, crazy, Matthew Broderick. Yeah, it's a crazy story. One, one of the big surprises that, that uh, I came up with in the research. Uh, so it's uh, 15 years after Willis Ware's paper. Ronald Reagan is up at Camp David 
first weekend of June in 1983, and, you know, he watches a lot of movies up there. And on that Saturday night, he watches War Games. You remember this was the Matthew Broderick yep. movie where he plays a teenage whiz kid who unwittingly hacks into the main computer at the North American Air Defense Command, and thinking that he's playing a new online game called Global Thermonuclear War, almost sets off World War III. So Reagan comes back to the White House. There's a big meeting in, on Wednesday with his national security staff uh, about something else completely. But at some point, he, he puts down his index cards and he says, has, has anybody seen this movie War Games? And nobody has. It had just come out. So he launches into this very detailed plot description. And, and people are, are looking around the room like, you know, where, where is this going? Yeah. And he turns to General John Vesey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the general, could something like this really happen? And the general says, I'll look into that, Mr. President, like generals do. Yeah. And he comes back a week later and says, Mr. President, the problem is much worse than you think. This leads 10 months later to the presidential signing of the first National Security Directive on Communications and Computer Security. And, and it reads very much like government papers you read today. Uh, our computer systems, which were then just going up, are vulnerable to electronic interference and interception by foreign powers, by criminals, by terrorists. But then it takes an interesting step. This directive is essentially written by people at the NSA because yeah. they're the only ones who know anything about this. And they write it so that the power to regulate and set the standards for all computers in the United States is controlled by the NSA. And <laughs> some people on Capitol Hill don't much like this. Uh, you know, that's, NSA, a, that's a little bit of Big Brother right there, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. So they rewrite this. But, uh, but in the meantime, this is where it all begins. This is, this is the, the er moment. Uh, the, the scenarios of what makes this so, of these kinds of systems so vulnerable the tensions between civil liberties and privacy, the, the political rivalries between the NSA and other branches of government, the things that now we're all very familiar with, all had their birth moments in, in this bizarre episode where Ronald Reagan watches a movie <laughs> and then asks a question that, that makes everybody in the room roll his eyeballs. Like, you know, what's the old man up to now? And I guess the other interesting part to this is, Willis Ware, you mentioned, I guess, if I read this correctly, he was, what, basically like a consultant well, on, on the movie War Games? Yeah, this is kind of the funny irony in where things come full circle. Uh, the, the two guys writing this movie, who also later wrote a movie called uh, Sneakers, which also had some impact, yeah. but, uh, they, they had heard from some friends who, who were hackers uh, about this technique called war dialing or demon dialing, where, where you know, this is before the Internet, where you, you program a phone to dial every number in an area code, and it rings twice, and, and, and if a modem picks up, it squawks, and, yeah. and the program records what that number is so you can come back to it later. That's how Matthew Broderick breaks into the NORAD computer in the game. But they're wondering, you know, is this plausible? I mean, wouldn't a computer like this, wouldn't it be a closed network? And so... They lived in Santa Monica, which is where the Rand Corporation was, yep. and they called up the Public Affairs Department, laid out their problems. He said, oh, you want to talk to Willis Ware? So they go meet with Willis Ware, who, who's a very nice, genial guy, 
And he listens to their problem. He goes, you know, it's funny. I, I designed the software for that computer, you know, in real life. And he goes, you know, you're right. It's a closed system. But there's always some officer who wants to work at home on the weekend, so they leave a port open. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, if somebody <laughs> dialed into that number, it could happen. And then he said something that in retrospect is very profound. He said, you know, what people don't realize is the only completely secure computer is a computer that no one can use. That's true. That's right. Because if you have access to it, somehow, some, some way, somebody will find it to get that access as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. We're talking with Fred Kaplan, who's the author of the book Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. You are welcome to jump in the conversation if you'd like. Ask Mr. Kaplan a question. The number to do so is at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. So then I guess then after that, that kind of that aha moment with, with President Reagan, uh, you talk about how it was still a period of time, another what, you know, 10, 15 years or so, Till the the government really started to 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 put a lot of resources forward on this, correct? Right, it, it lapsed again, and people periodically tried to get other people interested. But again, remember, compute. Think back. This is the seventies, the eighties. Computers yeah. were still very new. Yep. Uh, the military was, you know, the air force was controlled by people who had been fighter pilots or bomber pilots. The army by by tank commanders. The the navy by submarine skippers. Computers as a weapon or as something to be concerned about, it, this, nobody really thought it through. Then uh, three things happened around 1997. One, there was an exercise mm-hmm. where some NSA red team, like 25 red team analysts using commercially available equipment, not even the stuff that, that they had at their own disposal, hacked into the Defense Department's, to, just into all their networks just shut them down or distorted them, went in, wrote phony emails, intercepted emails, shut down fax lines, you know, just just obliterated it. And that's when people started to think, hmm, maybe there's something to this. Then, a few months later, uh, somebody was hacking into a lot of military networks. And it was thought, maybe this is Iran, maybe it's the Russians. It turned out to be two kids in California. Yeah. And some people said, whew, it was just two kids in California, whereas others said, wait a minute, if two kids in California can do this, what can a nation state do? Yeah. And then just a few months after that, uh, another hacking started to appear, much more sophisticated, much more persistent, looking for specific things. And this was eventually traced back to, the, to Russia, and it was the Russian government. And this was the Moonlight Maze, correct? It was called Moonlight Maze. Or that was the investigation into it was called yeah. Moonlight Maze. The, the one into the, the the thing that turned out to be two kids in California was called Solar Sunrise. So mm-hmm. this was the follow-up, Moonlight Maze. And uh, that's kind of when people started realizing this is a serious thing and uh, and measures need to be taken. And the, 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 the involvement of the Russians was uh, obviously that's something that, that really drew the attention of the U.S. government. In fact, you talk about how uh, and it hadn't obviously been talked about a lot, and you bring it forward, about how the American government, representatives from the American government, went to Russia yeah. to basically confront the Russians about this hack. Right. Now, keep in mind, this is 97, 98, so the Cold War is over. Yeah. You know, this, these yep. are halcyon days, Yeltsin and Clinton. You yep. know, we're all friends now. <laughs> Kumbaya. And so, 
And so people were saying, well, maybe this isn't the government. Maybe this is, you know, some recalcitrant faction within the intelligence community or something. So they decided to send over a team. Uh, and it wasn't going to be – it was presented – This was it was headed by the FBI. This is a criminal investigation where we're calling upon the Russian Federation for assistance. Yeah. So it was a five-day trip. The first day, uh, you know, welcome, champagne, caviar, blinis, you know, it was great. The next day, the first day of serious work, this general, this Russian general, very cooperative, opening up logs, comparing notes – you know, saying, oh, this is these bastards in the intelligence business. This is scandalous. This is awful. We're going to put an end to this. <laughs> then the next day, it's like, you're all going on a sightseeing tour today. Right, right, exactly. Then the next day, nothing. The next day, well, the general is very busy. Uh, we'll get back to you. And then nothing else happens. And they, they realize that what happened was that this general was just kind of out of the loop. And he probably got into serious trouble for sharing things like logs, uh, with the Americans. Now, uh, the hacking did stop for a little while, but then it resumed. And then the Chinese started getting involved, and a lot of other countries. In fact, you know, this, this war game that I mentioned back a, a few years earlier, or a few months earlier, when the NSA Red Team what was poking around inside the Defense Department networks, they came across some French IPs. In other words, the French really were hacking into Defense Department networks. So this, this was not, and that was something that was kept quite secret even in the debriefings of this game. But uh, this was not theoretical. This was something that was really happening. I, I get the sense that all, almost that with, in the case of the French, that it almost became a little bit of a game for them to say, hey, you know what, we have this ability Mm-hmm. Let's just see what they know anyway. We're not gonna we're not gonna do anything, you know, we're not gonna corrupt any of their of their right. hardware or anything like that, but let's just see what they know. Right. Well, yeah, it's like espionage. You know, yeah. you have you have a spy in the building. Well, you have a digital spy in the network. Uh but you know, here's where things get a little dangerous, and that is that a few years later when, when they started systematizing this whole enterprise, you know, they, they realized, okay, well, they divided the, the t- chores into three parts. And, they, you know, they used acronyms. There was CND, which is Computer Network Defense. Yeah. There was CNA, which is Computer Network Attack. But then there was something in the middle, CNE, Computer Network Exploitation. Okay. Literally, this meant you're exploiting vulnerabilities. You're getting inside the other guy's networks and you're, you're strolling around and seeing what's going on. Now, you can look at this in one of two ways. This is like espionage. You know, you're, you're just poking around, seeing what's going on. It can also be seen as active defense. You know, the best way to know whether an attack is coming is to get inside their networks and see if you can see an attack coming. But it's also just one push button away from computer network attack. You're in the network. Uh, Proceeding that extra step and and attacking the network, it it involves the same technology, the same skill set among the people doing it. And later, you know, a few years ago, uh, the government created U.S. Central Command. It's a combat command. Yeah. It's commanded by the same four-star general who is the director of the NSA. 
offense and defense are now seen as part of the same thing. So we're inside everybody's networks. Everybody's inside our networks. Is this espionage? Is it active defense? Is it preparing the battlefield for an attack? It could be any and all of those things. And let's imagine two powers on the verge of a confrontation. There might be a lot of incentive to get in that first attack before the other side gets in the first attack, because if there's a first step, you can degrade or distort or shut down his communications network, then you've got a real advantage in the uh, the first volley of the war that seems to be on the horizon. We are talking with uh, Fred Kaplan, who is the author of the book, Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. It, it's, an, it's just a phenomenal book uh, and has so many great stories in it. There's a couple others that I wanted to get to uh, before we, we run out of time. One, I'm I'm still I, I when I read this I kind of started to laugh a little bit That's and it, good. and and it's 1994 and President Clinton yeah and it involved Haiti and it just right. an invasion he wanted to pull off to get a group of warlords and how they kind of went about really kind of disabling the whole island of Haiti in one shot yeah well th- this was kind of the first. Step of uh, this is kind of proto cyber warfare. It was nineteen. It was in the mid nineties. Remember Clinton? There was he was planning an invasion of Haiti because yep. the legitimate elected leader had been overthrown by yep. some warlords. The invasion ended up not happening. The warlords were warned. They ran off. Yep. But one thing, the, Haiti did have a, a nominal air defense uh, system. And they didn't want any airplanes getting shot down. You know, this was a small operation. No point really putting people at risk on this. Right. And they also didn't want to uh, fire missiles at the radars because you're going to kill people. Yeah, this wasn't really a full-fledged war. So they went to something in San Antonio called the Air Force Information Warfare Center. They said, do you have any ideas how we can, you know, uh, override their their air defense? And And... This place was filled with these tech whiz kids, kind of like Matthew Broderick grown up. Yeah, yeah. And they'd been messing with telephones all their lives, right? And so one of them says, hey, boss, I've I've learned that the Haitian air defense system is wired into the commercial phone network. And I know how to make all the phones in Haiti busy at the same time. (laughs) And so that's what they were going to do. And and years later, during the, Uh. the air war against... Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia, it was the same thing. The integrated air defense system was tied in with the commercial phone network, and they got into the commercial phone line and hacked it so that it's hacked the data link between the radar and the radar screens that the operators were looking (laughs) at. So they would look at the screen, and it looked like some planes were coming from the northwest when, in fact, they were coming from the north. So they would shoot at the northwest. Uh, so the, this this started. This was still a very early stage, and you know this is now this kind of thing, but not with telephones, but with computers, where you can even do a lot more manipulation. It is an integral part of uh, both covert operations, some of which we've learned about, some of which we haven't, yeah. and uh, actual war plans. The other interesting thing is, is that also, obviously, in the last few years. 
not only has this really grown into something where you want to check on other governments, there are so many other entities out there that want to check on other companies out there. I mean, we've had the Sony, the Sony hack. I mean, there have been a lot of them out there. So it's not just the government that has to be very worried of this. It's pretty much every company here in the United States that needs to be worried about it. Right. Well, the concerns about this first arose not so much even about the military, but about critical infrastructure. You know, for the last 20, 25 years, we've developed these systems. And by critical infrastructure, I mean banks, transportation, power grids, dams, you know, the kinds of critical infrastructure, infrastructure without which a modern society kind of collapses. Yeah. Uh, They've all been tied into networks. You know, these what they're called SCADA systems, where it's controlled by computers with, with, with remote monitors and sensors. And, you know, you, you don't have to blow up a dam. You can hack into the control mechanism that, that's controlling the, the computer that's controlling the flow of water in and out of the dam and, right. and do the same damage, at least for a while. And uh, that's the kind of thing that, that, that has the most serious vulnerabilities now. Uh, and, you know, and this is, again, it's one of these things people have known about this for decades. Uh, the banks have worked on it quite a bit. The other mem- parts of the infrastructure, not so much, in part because these are private companies. Yeah. They don't have an incentive to do this. People have proposed mandatory security requirements here and there. But it's always been resisted by lobbyists, by the companies themselves, and even by, you know, Treasury and Commerce Department officials who will say, well, this is going to be uh, a severe impediment to their innovation. Uh, it's going to slow them down and make them less competitive in foreign markets. So, you know, every few years, a new government paper comes out warning about the, the vulnerability of all these things. It, it's been known for, for 35 years, and, and many vulnerabilities in the military networks have been addressed, but, but not so much in the civilian world. Well, I quickly, and we got about a minute, I was going to ask you, you know, is the government doing enough these days? Well, they're doing quite a bit, but, you know, every time there's a war game where they test whether someone could hack into, say, military command networks, yeah. they always get in. They always get in. And so now the, the Pentagon, for example, is they're focusing, not, not that they're stopping, they still continue to try to make the locks more secure, but they're focusing more on what they call detection and resilience. In other words, the trick is to make sure that if somebody gets into your networks, you see this very quickly, yep. and that you can repel them very quickly and repair the damage very quickly. They, they, it's kind of come to that. They've given up on the idea that they can somehow make a black box that nobody can get into. Fred, it's been a pleasure having you. I mean, this is a, a great book. Oh, I, 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 I'm, I'm a little bit of a history buff, mm-hmm. and I haven't ever really focused on the history of cyber, but this, this, this was great. I, I love great storytelling books, and, and you've done a phenomenal job with this. This is great. Well, thanks very much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.